Hey everybody, welcome to the Working Triathlete Podcast. Today we are once again speaking with Alex Geringer, the Working Triathlete Nutrition and Recovery Coach. And today we're going to discuss dietary uh, pattern macronutrient ranges for endurance athletes. So, you know, how much protein, how many carbs, how much fat should endurance athletes be consuming? Uh, we'll talk about intra-workout nutrition and intra-race nutrition. So, you know, how should you think about fueling yourself during workouts and during races? We'll also talk about post-workout nutrition and we'll explore some concepts surrounding carbohydrate loading protocols and, and whether it's even worth, you know, carbo-loading ahead of a race. So, Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, so, macronutrient ranges. Uh, so, you know, how, how many carbohydrates should endurance athletes actually be eating? Because you hear basically you can find evidence supporting whatever you want to hear, whether that's eat a lot of carbs, eat a little carbs, go keto. So, so what's the deal here? What's what should endurance athletes be eating? Yeah. So foundationally, first and foremost, thanks for having me on the podcast again. Uh, so when we think about carbohydrate intake, uh, I to your point, I think a lot of us can go out there and cherry pick studies that can maybe help to support our, our you know, maybe personal theories uh, or our uh, personal bias. But overwhelmingly, uh, the research for endurance athletes in particular, you know, really does support uh, a moderate to high carbohydrate diet uh, to really, you know, not only fuel performance for, you know, our events, but also to promote things like recovery, um, and injury prevention, uh, and just ensuring that uh, athletes are, you know, well equipped and well energized uh, to, to execute not only in, you know, any sort of training bout or effort they're engaging in. Um, but then also, you know, for for general life itself, uh, you know, given that glucose is the preferred fuel, not only for our um, our bodies during exercise, uh, specifically and especially at high intensity, uh, but also, you know, for for our brain um, to cognitively perform throughout the day. Um, and so, you know, the range that I would sort of highlight here is one that has been really supported, uh, you know, in the joint positions for a lot of those nutrition governing bodies out there, whether that's the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, or the American College of Sports Medicine, which is, um, it's quite a big range. And so uh, this is one of the you know, areas that, uh, uh, you know, unique experience, individual experience, and, um, you know, individualization is important. Um, but the recommendation is anywhere between five to 12 grams per kilogram. Uh, I know a lot of our athletes and listeners are uh, United States based, and we're, we're more of a pound versus kilogram community. Uh, so to translate that, maybe to just an example that might be elucidating, for uh for an 150 pound person uh that is anywhere from 340 grams to over 800 grams of carbohydrates per day uh to support again you know activity performance uh just day-to-day -day life uh and from a calorie perspective that's like 1300 up to upwards of 3000 calories a day purely from carbohydrate that five to 12 grams per kilogram, that's for active athletes, right? It is. So this is for an athlete who's engaging in, uh, you know, over an hour a day, maybe two a day uh, sessions. 
And that upper limit of like 12 grams per kilogram, that's, that's our, our truly elite cohort. That's people that are training, call it four to five hours per day. And that's inclusive of any nutrition that they would be taking in, you know, to support those workout bouts, you know, across that, across that cycle. So if they're taking sports supplements, um, that's, that's included within that number, not added on top. And as a point of reference to the extent it's, you know, helpful uh, when we think about, you know, other sort of, you know, areas of performance. So for say a strength or a, a strength focused athlete to, to meet like hypertrophy goals, uh, a relatively active, you know, power strength athlete, the range is like three to eight grams per kilogram. So it's, it's still pretty substantial, you know, even though I think a lot of times when we think about or consider strength or power-based athletes, our minds automatically go to protein amounts. Carbohydrate continues to be really important for that population as well, uh, with with quite an expanded array of carbohydrate needs. Let's linger on this topic a little bit longer, and can can we explore exactly you know why carbohydrates are specifically important for endurance athletes? I know you touched upon that a little bit, but th but through the lens of uh, you know, pushing against a lot of the recent, it's not even recent. I mean, low carbohydrate diets have been around for, for a while, you know, Atkins and, and keto. And, and, uh, when we think about carbohydrates, carbs have been inextricable from just, it's been, they've been associated with endurance athletes forever, you know, carb loading, pasta, you know, endurance athletes need their carbs. And, and it, it really is the case that that it's important um so you know when we think about high intensity training and and really long training i, I why are carbohydrates truly important it, it's a great question and so what what i would say maybe as a as a as a first point to sort of showcase the uh, you know uh the the benefit of carbs relative to maybe other fuel substrates like like fat that you mentioned when we think about the energy yield from carbohydrates, it is five to 7% more efficient than fat. And so when we actually think about how our body is, you know, digesting, breaking down carbohydrates into glucose, and then how our body is leveraging that glucose um, to actually, you know, perform, improve gross exercise efficiency, you know, that's, that's really where carbohydrates become, become king. And they really are the preferred energy source for, you know, for our muscles during strenuous exercises, in addition to what I described earlier about, you know, other unconscious biological processes, whether that's, you know, mood regulating serotonin supply, or even just, you know, fueling our brain, aiding in cognition, aiding in, um, aiding in focus and concentration. And, you know, there was, to your point, um, you know, some pr a practice some years ago that was really focusing on, you know, um, fat loading, uh, you know, around endurance exercise or exercise in general. And it was born from this idea that there was um, preferential fat utilization as fuel for exercise and that it would improve endurance because we have a lot of adipose tissue. We have a lot of fat stores within our body. And so ostensibly we could, you know, quote unquote, spare glycogen and provide limitless energy. Um, and so there was a time where there was experimentation with, you know, carbohydrate restriction in the days leading up to an athletic event 
um, coupled with high fat intake uh, to really encourage, you know, fat adaptation or, you know, what we might hear around these parts these days is keto adaptation. And what the research has continuously shown us is that, you know, this scheme repeatedly and consistently fails to actually produce performance enhancement in controlled experiments. And in fact, it actually has an ergolytic, so the opposite of ergogenic, it has a negative effect a performance impairing effect, you know, decreased sprinting and power output, uh, a reduction in exercise economy. Um, and in fact, when we think from a dietary pattern perspective, so even outside of like what you might be doing in and around an event or the day of an event, um, when we look at high fat, low carbohydrate diets, um, it can actually impair glucose break or pardon me, glycogen breakdown. Um, and as a result, glucose availability, so that you're then compromised in high intensity work output when you're actually working out. Um, and so I, I know that there's a, a lot out there these days about, you know, different dietary approaches. And, you know, to your point, there's emerging research that's looking at these like, train high, recover low, or, you know, uh, train low, recover high, which means the, the provision of, of glycogen of carbohydrate within either a training regimen or within the dietary pattern outside of training. I, I'm interested in seeing a little bit more compelling research and more consistent uh, research uh, before really recommending that strategy. And I would offer that for our general population of endurance athletes out there outside of the elite I think that those strategies where you're really shifting and restriction, pardon me, restricting carbohydrate availability, whether that's within the context of a diet or within the context of, you know, peri-workout, so pre, you know, intra and post, I think the larger risk is compromising recovery and really opening up the risk for injury, which would impede any sort of performance benefit that might be derived from a strategy like that, from someone who perhaps had a little bit more to gain from getting a little bit more strategic and experimental in their approach. There's always new trends. And it seems that every month, there's an athlete that inquires about the keto diet, and what that might entail. But uh, can you speak a little bit more about that and why it may not be a great idea for an endurance athlete? Yeah, so, uh, you know, from a from a keto diet perspective, uh, maybe I'll just offer a couple of like headline verdicts that the research is sort of telling us as it relates to dietary pattern and then as it relates to endurance performance. Um, so, you know, at, at the highest level for, for a keto diet, I think it's important to call out that, you know, this diet was designed uh, for patients with epilepsy. Uh, this was this was not designed for the general population. Um, and, you know, even in cases, uh, you know, where this has been shown, say, to support weight loss efforts, which some of the more recent studies have sort of touted the keto diet as being, you know, quote, unquote, superior uh, in supporting weight loss. Uh, what those studies really uh, do show is a high dropout rate. So a high level of uh, inability to be consistent with such a restrictive approach uh, in how individuals are fueling their bodies. Um, 
and also a lot of these studies are looking at a 12 week period. So the you know time frame of the study and in cases where there is say um, improved fat loss, there's a detrimental effect in the preservation of lean muscle mass and outside of 12 weeks, it's not superior in any way in supporting you know, any sort of, uh, you know, body recomposition, sort of like weight loss imperative or goal that an individual would have. Uh, and more importantly, what we've seen from the research around the keto diet is that it has a high propensity, high likelihood of raising LDL cholesterol, uh, which is typically a, a risk factor for chronic disease. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the associated benefits of like, improved blood pressure or improved metabolic function, there's a little bit of a conflation where it's hard to sort of parse out if any of those outcomes are the result of the keto diet, or if it's the result of the outcome of someone undergoing a keto diet, which is to say, are these benefits experienced because people are losing weight, not because they're necessarily involved in a specific ketogenic protocol. Um, and so Keto may improve metabolic disease in some cases, particularly if high blood sugar is a concern, uh, but you know, definitely should only be done under medical supervision uh, and you know, likely coupled with other you know, health promoting therapeutic tools and behavioral strategies and health procedures. And when we think about endurance athletes, I think there are you know, intriguing possibilities of using ketones as fuel um, but to date, there's very little evidence uh, to suggest that the keto diet improves overall athletic performance. Um, and in fact, in I, I, there was like a 2022 study that I'm recalling at, at a high level here. Um, I think it was in the Journal of Sports Medicine. And, and basically what it found was that I, I think it looked at a range of different sports from like cycling to strength and um, for cycling when the duration of the event became shorter and as a result, it became more intense that the, the effort or the output the athlete was engaging in. Carb, carbohydrate rich diets were superior to keto diets. And when you looked at longer duration events, it, it wasn't that there was a benefit. It was just that there were lesser differences between the outcomes. So there wasn't like a superior factor uh, attributed to keto. Uh, and I think, again, like I mentioned a, a few moments ago, just about the associated ergolytic effect that we see with high fat, low carb diets, uh, we more often are, are, are seeing performance impairments for high intensity endurance exercise, uh, as well as for, you know, like maximal strength pursuits, if we were to parlay this over to the resistance strength power uh, community. Well, let's focus on that piece, because you know, the, the most relevant thing for I think most triathletes is, is everybody just wants to go faster. And when we think about carbohydrates versus, you know, fat adaptation and, and, and burning more fat as fuel, it seems like we're looping, we have looped back around and, and there, there's a greater emphasis, uh, on, you know, consuming more carbohydrates just all the time. And also during, uh, workouts and races specifically, because we know that, we can talk about this a little bit later in the intra workout part, but say more about why glycogen glucose is the preferred source when you're when you're 
working out, particularly for for triathletes up to Ironman, because because maybe the, the discussion shifts if we're talking about, I don't know, somebody through hiking the Appalachian Trail or something or, you know, a 22 day endurance event where they're, you know, they're they're working out 16 hours a day or something. You know, we're talking about shorter efforts. And in the grand scheme of things, an Ironman, it's a long day, but it's still just just one day and, and carbs are incredibly important and we can replace them pretty darn at a really high rate. So I guess maybe say more about that, exactly why it's important to, to emphasize carbs. Yes. So it's it's really a matter of how quickly our body can work to produce energy. So when we think about glycogen within our system or taken exogenously, so like by way of a sports supplement, um, as I mentioned, it's five to 7% more efficient than fat. And so when we are taking glycogen or glucose into our body, we're able to uptake that and absorb it at, at a higher rate to actually fuel what we are doing. And because, you know, we can, we can create some of this within our own bodies, um, but the time frame uh, and the expense of that is higher. And so for longer endurance events, maybe where you're metering at a lower intensity, call it like zone two in your example of like an ultra hiking event for a prolonged period of time, we have the, the luxury of time. Uh, and we also don't have the, uh, you know, immediate need um, to, to have our energy at such a high rate or a high level. Um, and so we can rely on other fuel substrates such as fat within our bodies to fuel that. But for high intensity where, you know, ATP, the energy currency of our cells needs to be used to power muscle contraction, glycogen is the best, most efficient, most quickly acting source to accomplish that. And when we think about a race uh, or, or an event, right? It is the case that we're, we're, you know, in the case of like a half Ironman or an Ironman, like we're going for a long period of time, but you also have to consider what happens over the course of, of that course, right? You're having undulating hills, you're having periods where maybe you're surging or your power output is a little bit higher. Maybe you're trying to get ahead of a competitor at the very end of the race. All of that is high intensity and glycogen is the primary fuel source that would enable you to actually accomplish that. So glycogen is the fuel that we need for these higher output endeavors, especially for endurance events. It's what the body wants to burn when it's when you're working out at, at a fairly high intensity. Um, and obviously the higher the intensity, the higher the percentage of carbs to to fat that you're burning and vice versa. And, you know, we uh, we know now that especially with newer products, sort of a, you know, glucose and, and fructose blends, we can take in a lot during exercise and we can ward off that, that bonk. Uh, and we know that the limiter often for athletes in 70.3 and Ironman events, it certainly can be metabolic or it, 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 the, the limiter can certainly be lack of carbohydrates and bonking for sure. But it, it, it's, it's also often the case that it's just fatigue. <laughs> so the muscles are fatigued. The motor units just sort of stop firing. They start, 
they start cramping. So it's uh, basically, and again, we'll talk about this later in the intra-workout piece, but, you know, we're at the point where we can, I think, confidently say that most athletes, if they experiment well in training, they should be able to sustain themselves through a race and a workout by fueling with, you know, carbohydrate-based solutions like sports drink, gels, et cetera. And there's less of a need to be this uber fat adapted athlete because we can take in enough carbohydrates to continue using. It is the ideal fuel source for when you're working out. It's it's easy for your body to burn it, convert it to energy, especially at higher intensities. So, you know, this, this obsession with becoming fat adapted, it's, it's probably less useful for the vast majority of athletes than, uh, you know, might, than it might seem at first. Is that a fair statement? That is, I would tend to agree. And I would say that if you also consider the potential benefit that's derived from going into any exercise fueled, I think the quality of that session and the benefit for, you know, training adaptation, uh, you know, the hormesis that's involved is we're sort of like taxing our body, our muscles with that, uh, you know, variable intensity, variable output. I think there's more to be gained from having a little carbohydrate before a session to make sure that you have some sort of energy um, to power that session, to make sure that you hit your intensities. Maybe the analysis or the calculus shifts a little bit if it's a 40-minute or a 30-minute supporting run first thing in the morning when you're waking up. You know, for some people, maybe they feel better doing that fasted. But I think for the, the vast majority of athletes, taking in a little bit of carbohydrate, even if it's something like a date, which I actually use with a lot of my clients because they're small, poppable, like super, super easy and, and whole food based. Um, without really having any track record of a ton of digestive distress for really any of my athletes who've um, begun incorporating that into their routine. Um, it, it's it's just a safer approach to make sure that you are heading into that workout with a little bit of energy uh, and, you know, mitigating or attenuating any sort of risk of in, injury or, you know, inability to, to push paces. So when you speak to carbohydrates being more efficient specifically five to seven percent more efficient than like fat for example is that the efficiency factor for using it as energy or is that also like taking into consideration how easy it is to digest in the body so like consuming you know a sports drink that's broken down already versus like a, an avocado that's right. So um, I, I think so the five to seven percent figure is more about uh, efficiency of, of mobilizing that energy within our body. So not speaking specifically to absorption. But when we think in our dietary pattern about how fat is actually used, like from a blood sugar regulation standpoint, when you have a meal that's balanced with fat, fiber, protein, carbs, one of the roles of fat within that meal is actually to blunt that blood sugar curve. So to slow the absorption within our gut um, to really help to, to meter and keep that blood sugar, you know, down and elongated across the curve. And so you're absolutely right. Like it's, it's helpful from an absorption perspective. And even when we think about some of these 
like emerging products out there, like ketone esters, the, the, the individuals that are actually taking those in are taking ketone esters alongside carbohydrate, because that is the most efficient way to have those be absorbed within our bodies and to be used efficiently. So I think if, if anything, that should tell us how, you know, how vital and important and efficient carbohydrate is as a source to, to fuel our activity. So people listening to this, they they're hearing all of these good good things about carbohydrates and then they're trying to reconcile it against uh, all of the, this sort of massive pushback against blood sugar levels and you have all these continuous glucose monitors that athletes are buying now and they're tracking their glucose and you know we think about the glucose goddess and other you know people like that figures in the uh in the nutrition world who basically caution people from inciting sugar spikes, you know, in, in their body. And how should we reconcile that with an endurance athlete's need to, to have carbohydrates or is, or is it overblown? Is the very concern about, you know, blood sugar spikes a little bit silly and only relevant for people who have diabetes. So what what I would offer is that I think the increased focus on blood sugar regulation is a very positive thing for the general population, especially in America where we have, you know, an an, an incredible increase right now in um, you know, metabolic dysregulation, metabolic disease. Uh, and so from a dietary pattern perspective, I appreciate that there's a lot of focus around how to, you know, balance meals to, to mitigate blood sugar spikes. What I will say is that I think there's a lot of fear mongering that's occurring around this. And when we think about the endurance community and the endurance population, how our body reacts to absorbs, utilizes car- carbohydrate, while we're actively engaged in activity is completely different than how our body uses that when we are sitting down for a meal with our family at the end of the day or enjoying a snack and Netflix and chilling at the end of the night. Like it's, it's used completely differently. And I think that I am, and I think I, I may have mentioned this during my intro podcast some months back, but I'm intrigued by the concept of continuous glucose monitors to sort of measure trends. I think what's lost in translation for a lot of individuals who might endeavor to incorporate a CGM into their routine, uh, you know, social determinants of health, of availability of these products for, you know, populations such as those with diabetes who actually need them and having them become a little bit less available aside, um, you know, when we think about these continuous glucose monitors, what they're measuring is, our blood sugar spike. What they are not measuring is the other side of the equation, which is in otherwise healthy people with functioning pancreases, it's not measuring the insulin response. So it's saying, you know, this is happening with my blood sugar as a result of eating this food or exercising, because by the way, exercise also causes a blood sugar spike. Um, (laughs) What it's not then measuring is the response in our bodies from our normally functioning pancreases to say, I'm releasing this amount of insulin, um, which is a storage hormone to really shuttle that blood sugar out of the blood um, and to lower that. And the sort of like spikes and ranges that occur 
for the majority of people are incredibly normal. Uh, and it's not a point in time that we're interested in. It's a trend over a period of time. And so I think there's a lot of interesting research to be done around like what those ideal thresholds look like. Uh, and I think that where the, the fear mongering that's out there right now and where I think a little bit of misinterpretation can sometimes come in uh, is around how to interpret the results to make sure that we're not restricting something from our diet that we just either like misunderstand what a blood sugar spike means after eating that, you know, so long as it comes back down, the curve across the day is trended normally. And then again, within the context of exercise, from an, like from like a bio individual standpoint, as well as from, you know, an endurance athlete population standpoint, I don't think we yet know enough about like what those spikes and curves should really look like to optimize performance and what interventions we would introduce or like what application of that uh, information we would use to change what we're doing. So we have carbs as a macronutrient. And then there are some other ones. What's the, what's the sec? What's your second favorite, <laughs> or or what's your favorite? Maybe carbohydrates aren't your favorite. What's your favorite macronutrient? <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> uh, second fa second favorites, carbohydrates are my favorite, uh, especially uh, these days uh, as, a, as a as a pregnant human. Um, but uh, protein, I think, is probably the the second one to sort of dial in and dive into here. Uh, and, you know, current research really suggests that consuming protein at a rate of, you know, between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram really supports the uh, maximization, preservation of lean muscle mass for both, you know, resistance trained and endurance engaged athletes. And so, uh, you know, this is higher certainly than the the RDA uh, for the general population, which in my opinion is set a little bit low. Uh, and so I, I, another way to sort of translate this to pounds is about, you know, a gram per pound per day uh, for athletes. And, you know, I, I wanted to take this opportunity also to, to debunk or um, to offer a little bit of color on something that I've heard a couple of clients uh, raise up to me as well as it relates to protein, which is around protein intake and dosing across the day. Uh, so sometimes uh, people might have heard like that you can only have a certain amount of grams of protein within a given meal or it's wasted. And that threshold is usually like 30 to 40 grams per meal. And what I would say here is that I think, you know, playing a role in muscle protein synthesis, that 30 to 40 gram range might be, might be at the high end, right? Of supporting muscle protein synthesis. But when we think about what protein is used for, it's not just for developing muscle tissue. It's also in, you know, involved in the production of hormones, in the, the transport uh, of protein or pardon me, molecules like lipoproteins um, that move cholesterol and fat throughout our body. Uh, there are hormonal implications, there's skin tissue development. So it's not as if we're quote unquote wasting protein intake. And for especially for older athletes, um, actually making sure that we're dosing across the day becomes really important just because we're uh, a little bit more limited as we age in um, in really just how we uh, 
uh, how we take that protein in. And so, you know, looking at trying to take that in, you know, maybe across, but before four different meals across the day becomes a little bit more of a focus area for, for aging athletes, but generally speaking, uh, you know, not, not a harm in say having a bolus of protein within a certain meal. Uh, and it's not as if you're not standing to benefit from, from that. What about, so when we think about consuming protein, obviously we have meat, which is the most popular or famous source of protein. And then we have, you know, different plant-based proteins, and then we have protein powders. Um, you know, what do you think the best sources of protein are? What should athletes, how should athletes think about consuming protein when it comes to things like bioavailability and, and all that? Sure. So I would say the best form of protein is the protein that you enjoy and that supports uh, any sort of, you know, ethical perspective or dietary perspective that you might have. Uh, I think that there is uh, a wonderful opportunity for people across the planet to incorporate more plant-based protein sources, um, not least of which because it, you know, fosters a significant environmental impact uh, from an animal-based protein perspective, uh, and also because plant proteins come implicit with a lot of great things like fiber uh, that can really help uh, add to our diet. Um, I'm an omnivore personally, so I, I incorporate both animal-based and plant-based proteins. Considerations for, uh, say, a, a plant-based eater or uh, more of a, a vegan vegetarian athlete out there uh, would just be uh, to make sure that they are consuming complementary protein sources across the day. Um, so there are complete plant-based protein sources out there. Um, so things like pea protein and, and things like uh, soy protein, those are complete protein sources. In other cases, we have incomplete protein sources, which just means that there might be a, a lack of or a less meaningful component of a specific essential amino acid. So something like methionine or lysine might be in a smaller amount in brown rice, for example, than say in a black bean. And we can get around these uh, differences in essential amino acid content by pairing our food together. Uh, and quite frankly, a lot of this has already sort of been done for us when we think about the the general pattern of how in individuals enjoy paired foods. Um, so things like peanut butter on a whole grain piece of toast, things like black beans with rice, these are all complementary proteins. And it's also not the case that it has to be enjoyed within a single meal. Uh, it can be enjoyed across a day and our body is able to aggregate all of that together. Um, slightly less bioavailable. So if I did have a client who was, say, switching from a diet that incorporated both animal-based and plant-based proteins, or, you know, in an extreme was going completely animal-based over to plant-based, we might adjust their protein a little bit just to make sure that there, you know, was not a, a huge change in bioavailability um, and absorption rates for, for that protein. Um, but both can be accomplished healthfully. And I think with a little bit of attention to the diet, uh, which I would advocate for anyone, regardless of their uh, approach to uh, incorporating protein into their day to day.
And from a protein powder perspective, there's nothing magical about protein powder. I think it's a great adjunct to a diet, especially in cases where people might be struggling to meet their protein needs. Um, and there's also been some interesting research about like casein protein supplementation around, you know, bedtime and supporting muscle protein synthesis uh, overnight as one sleeps. And so what I always just caution my clients about is looking for third-party tested supplements, uh, NSF certified and informed choice for sport are the, the two designations that I typically will consider and look at. Um, and, you know, individuals can sort of make, make a call, uh, whether they want a whey-based supplement, a casein supplement, um, a pea-based supplement or some other sort of plant, uh, plant protein blend. I do advocate and recommend blends outside of soy or hemp to make sure that you have a, a complete profile. Uh, and the only other consideration when selecting a protein powder is making sure that the leucine content that you're taking in and uh, most of these third-party tested supplements are pretty good about actually including that level of detail and visibility on their labels or on their websites or on like a certificate of analysis to show how much leucine content is within a scoop or a serving. Uh, and you want to target about two to three grams of leucine, particularly after uh, like an endurance or resistance training session, again, to support and maximize that muscle protein synthesis. About a decade ago, maybe there was an increase in the number of intra-workout sports drinks that added protein. And it always seemed a little bit silly to me that you would want to drink protein in the middle of a race. Um, but was I wrong? Or, or what is the uh, the current view of you know the nutrition world on consuming protein during racing, Olympic distance races, all the way up to Ironman? Yeah. So again, the headline really is that carbohydrates are king for athletic performance. And what the research shows us is that protein is a relative non-factor here. Um, you know, you can give consideration to like the timing of the next session uh, of, you know, training, for example, if it, within the context of training about ingesting protein with carbohydrate, just because you absorb it at a little bit of a slower rate. And so let's say you were to have like a protein shake that had protein and carbs before a workout, it could feasibly support muscle protein synthesis sort of like after the fact, but it, it doesn't expedite like post-exercise glycogen resynthesis as was once surmised. Um, and it's not really necessary to have like carbohydrates along with protein to support muscle protein synthesis. There was this theory that like co-ingesting them would speed up muscle protein synthesis. It would like help to like clear all of the cars out of the way and all of the traffic jams to help that go a little bit more smoothly. Um, we're, we're not really seeing that, but what I would offer is that, um, for many of the listeners who are triathletes who are listening here, you know, I think the, the pattern or the approach of like a post-workout, for example, like protein plus carb, uh, with like a carbohydrate three to one, um, to the protein ratio would be supportive of getting in your amount of carbs that you need every single day, along with your protein intake. Um, and then also helping to replenish, you know, glycogen stores for the next training session, not necessarily to optimize muscle protein synthesis. Um, but again, protein's a relative non-factor. Calculus might change for aging uh, populations engaged in 
events that are going to be taking them out there for, I don't know, 12 to 16 plus hours or for multi-day events. But for the majority of people out there, really a non-factor in terms of um, in terms of performance. So I was going to ask about the aging factor. And is there a certain age where people should start considering that? I think it's pretty individual. I mean, I would say that uh, for 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 athletes who are, you know, cresting above uh, maybe the age of 60, it becomes something where you want to be a little bit more uh, intentional and diligent about just inquiring about that with a coach. Uh, and again, only for those longer duration efforts. It's it's not my perspective, and I've not seen it in the literature that for like an Olympic event uh, that protein becomes a factor. We would just want to make sure that across the rest of the day and across the dietary pattern that protein is being consumed, you know, within those amounts and thresholds uh, that research has, you know, really supported. Um, but within the context of training, uh, I'm not of the opinion or perspective uh, that for, you know, under the age of 60, 65, and maybe even in those cases, uh, depending on training status, depending on you know, history, uh, and in even like biofeedback while they're actively training and racing, uh, those are all things and considerations, uh, that would play into, you know, how they would select a sports supplement. The, I remember going on rides with athletes who used sports drinks that has had protein in it. And, and after like a couple hours in the sun in like the, the Tennessee heat, the summer heat and humidity, Man, those drinks would get ripe. I bet we all know the you know <laughs> the protein drink. Uh, uh, oh man, if you just leave like a a cup of protein in your car once it's in the fluid, it it gets pretty disgusting. But um, I mean, so it seems like protein is it can inhibit your body's ability to empty fluid and, and nutrition from, from the stomach. Right. Um, and that we know now that when we think about intra workout, intra race nutrition, our goal is to absorb as much, really as much fluid up, I mean, up to a, a point, you don't want to replace more fluid than you're losing, but I mean, we want to maximize the, I guess, gastric emptying and, and protein might, w would it inhibit that? Do you think? I don't know that it would have like an, a negative impact on your body's ability to leverage carbohydrate. But what I would say is I don't think it's offering anything ergogenic or beneficial. And I think that in the worst case, it's causing GI distress, discomfort, and potentially dehydration. And so there's not like a benefit to taking it in. Uh, and so it, it's not a need to make sure that it's present within your supplement, unless again, it's like a multi-day event where the calculus changes a little bit, uh, for, for that individual. And what about, what about fat and endurance athletes? What's the best source of fat? How much fat should athletes be eating each day? Yeah. So, so fats, that third, uh, you know, macronutrient within the, the dietary pattern, uh, what I would say is, uh, you know, typically with, with uh, clients that I'm working with, like we're very focused on the thresholds and ratios for protein and carbs. Um, and fat is not like the redheaded stepchild, um, of, of that cohort, but there's a little bit less, uh, focus on like a specific threshold that we need. What I would say is that with my athletes, uh, I am never, uh, dipping below 20% of total 
calories. Like, so that's the low end cutoff. Um, you know, dietary fat plays a lot of important roles, you know, physiologically within our body from the metabolism of fat soluble vitamins. So like A, D, E, and K, um, the, you know, maintenance of our brain and our nervous system structures, um, and it needs to be derived, you know, from the diet, our, our body's not able to manufacture sufficient amounts of fat, you know, within itself. Uh, and so that that's typically the, the recommendation there. Uh, I think for gen pop about, you know, a third of your calories coming from, from fat is helpful. And, you know, from a, a dietary perspective, we want to generally speaking, aim to cut down on saturated fat and opt for more monounsaturated or polyunsaturated fats within our diet um, to really, you know, promote good health. What foods contain mono and poly fats? Uh, that, that's a great question. So uh, from a uh, monounsaturated fat perspective, those are things like avocados, olive oils, nuts and seeds, polyunsaturated fat, um, you know, oily fish, flaxseed, uh, vegetable oils, uh, and then saturated fats. So those that we want to, you know, limit to some degree uh, are things like butter, milk, uh, all, uh, pardon me, co coconut oil, uh, and cheese. Interesting. And what about MCT oil? I know that that has been, I think, bulletproof coffee really <laughs> I think, popularized that. And now you walk around the nutrition shops and you see bottles of MCT oil. What is the deal with, with that? Yeah. So MCT oil, it's medium chain triglycerides. So coconut oil is a strong source of MCT oil to your point about bulletproof coffee. So there was a time uh, to sort of parlay this over to endurance sports too. There was a time like in the nineties when there was emerging research and a theory that these um, medium chain triglycerides, so MCT might have some ergogenic potential in, in, in the case of racing. Um, MCTs are very rapidly absorbed and converted to ketone bodies, uh, and they can be rapidly used by the muscle uh, with a significant portion converted into those ketones first. Um, but <laughs> what the consistent accumulation of studies have really shown is that, you know, there's a failure for um, MCT to really enhance performance when it's consumed, you know, before exercise, during exercise, and, you know, actually quite to the contrary, um, ingesting MCT uh, actually <laughs> decreases exercise performance, um, mostly due to GI upset. Yeah. Um, because the amount of MCT that you would have to take in to actually foster any sort of benefit uh, would really just have you sitting in a porta potty on the side of the course. Uh, and so uh, at this point, uh, low, uh, even when low amounts are are taken, there's not a significant or a material effect on metabolism or on performance that's observed um, to really, you know, advocate for incorporating these into your diet. And I would say, you know, because we really want to be thoughtful about our fat intake uh, and the sources of those, um, bulletproof coffee is is not something that I would I would personally advocate to to have within your routine. What else, you know, are there any other recommendations that you might offer general recommendations that you would offer to endurance athletes? Um, maybe in addition to those three main macronutrient, uh, sources, like what, if you had to recommend one thing, one additional recommendation, what, what would it be? 
uh, it would be fiber intake. So um, fiber is not a macronutrient, but fiber is an incredibly important component of the diet and the standard American diet uh, is pretty lacking in fiber intake. Um, fiber is really important uh, for, you know, keeping our digestive systems healthy and in good working order. It slows digestion. Um, so not great, maybe like right before a race um, or, you know, a training bout, but within the context of dietary pattern, it does help to regulate blood sugar levels. It helps to promote satiety, um, which, you know, thereby mitigates the likelihood of um, unnecessary weight gain. And, um, you know, for, for every eight grams uh, intake of fiber per day, we actually reduce the risk of type two diabetes by 15%, colon cancer by 80% and heart disease by, I think just about 20%. So really significant implications for longevity uh, and for avoidance of chronic disease. Uh, and, a, and a good rule of thumb here is uh, 14 grams per thousand calories of dietary intake. So if someone's taking, you know, uh, 2000 calories a day, which is, you know, pretty low actually for the majority of our endurance athletes out there, that's 28 grams. Um, but I think monitoring that, uh, taking care to monitor your fiber intake, even for a short period of time, just to see where you sort of fall within that range can be really helpful um, to incorporate you know, either an addition of berries to a meal, uh, oatmeal is a great source of fiber. Uh, and then again, a lot of those plant-based protein sources, things like lentils are great sources of fiber, things like beans to incorporate within the diet, uh, to, to really, you know, help ensure uh, a healthy dietary pattern, you know, separate and apart from those quote unquote core macros that we've already, uh, discussed earlier on the pod. I know there are two types of fiber. Right. I know that Metamucil, for example, is di a different type of fiber than the fiber found in, in vegetables. Is there a specific type of fiber that, you know, endurance athletes would benefit from, or is there a specific type of fiber that is more lacking in people's diets? Like what's the deal with that? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so what I would say, there are two forms of fiber. There's soluble and insoluble fiber. Um, so soluble fiber is found in like the, the flesh, the pulp of um, like fruits and vegetables, as well as in like grains, seeds, legumes, things like lentils, peanuts. And then there's insoluble fiber, which is found in, um, uh, you know, like nuts, seeds, whole grain, rice, bran. Uh, I would, you know, different types of fiber are actually contained within self-same food. So less focus, I think needed, unless you're someone struggling with like, you know, IBSC or IBSD and, and need to sort of think about, um, the different types of fiber that might support or, uh, you know, mitigate a certain outcome of experience within your body. Um, but generally speaking, um, just tracking general high level fiber intake, um, because a lot of different types of fiber, as I mentioned, like in a sweet potato, you're getting both types of fiber from the fleshy part and then from the skin, um, maybe taking care to enjoy, uh, you know, the, the whole fruit or the whole vegetable, not doing something insane, like eating, or I don't know, people can have their own approaches here. I shouldn't qualify it that way, but like maybe not eating an orange peel because I just said to eat the skin of a vegetable or pardon me, the skin of a fruit, but maybe not peeling your apples every time you eat an apple or peeling your potatoes every time you eat a potato um, so that you're, you're getting that, uh, that fiber as well uh, from the skin. 
I think we covered all of the general day-to-day dietary considerations as it relates to macronutrients and fiber. Um, so let's move on now to intra-workout and intra-race nutrition. So how should athletes be thinking about fueling when they're training and racing? Yeah. So what I would say is that training provides a great breeding ground to really be able to practice hone and gut train our ability to take in a certain amount of nutrition while we're actually out on course. And so um, it's certainly not the case that individuals need to take in the maximal amount they possibly can every single time they're going out for a training session, but there should be an intentional focus, you know, call it on race specific days, uh, on, on a mix, on a mix of different days too, because we want to be able to ensure that our gut is able to tolerate, call it, you know, 90 grams of carbohydrate on a ride that has bouts of intensity, uh, that would mimic potentially, you know, how we would need to take that nutrition in during the course of a race, uh, in the same way, um, that we also want to make sure that we're fueling our body appropriately for that activity. Um, and I think individuals can play around with what sources they use during training. Um, you know, the headline that I would always use here is, you know, you can use whole food sources, you can use maybe a little bit more cost effective sources. So even things like gummies I've seen included a lot within, you know, the context, like those like Welch's fruit gummies or like Scandinavian swimmers. If you're a Trader Joe's fanatic, like I am, you know, those can be sort of you know, incorporated into your fueling strategy. But at the end of the day, we also want to make sure that our, you know, guts become familiar and we're really able to test the limits and thresholds with the nutrition we're planning to use on race day. And I think importantly, also on course nutrition. So the products that are going to be available on course, so that if you launch a bottle on the bike, or, you know, stuff starting to decay a little bit during the back half of the marathon of the Ironman, you're not a stranger to the types of things that they're going to have on course um, so that you're able to, you know, build a little bit of resiliency there and then not also surprise your body, uh, you know, during more of a vulnerable uh, position and time during the course of a race. Um, So high level, you know, ranges here, uh, you know, previously research you know, really did support 30 to 60 grams per hour of, uh, you know, carbohydrate for 60 minute events, and then 60 to 90 grams per hour for events that were more than two hours. Um, and there's been emerging research that we can actually tick up the, the higher end of that threshold. Um, there was a, a research study that was actually done uh, I think it was in 2020 um, that looked at, and and this was not in a, but this was not performed in a lab. Um, so, you know, take that with what you will, but it, it looked at these mountain marathoners um, supplementing with 120 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Um, and what they were really evaluating was the impact on recovery. So like exercise induced muscle damage. And what they found was that supplementing up to that 120 gram threshold, um, you know, was, was tolerated. And in fact, when they looked at, you know, those biomarkers that they were measuring, like creating kinase, you know, after, after that event, that there was an increase in, uh, those recovery parameters for those athletes, which, um, you know, I, I think is, is good news there. Uh, 
And, you know, when we think about being able to supplement with carbohydrate during the course of an event, you know, Conrad, I think you made a point earlier. I think sometimes that wall that people hit is less so about, you know, uh, nutrition availability in their body if they're supplementing appropriately and more about, you know, limitations from a training status perspective of muscle fatigue uh, and things like that. And in fact, a lot of the research around cramping is more related to that than say an electrolyte imbalance or dehydration. It's really more around our, our bodies just not being used to that level of output and training effort. Um, but I think it is the case that dialing in a nutrition protocol and taking in as much as possible is the key to ensuring that we are sustained from a performance perspective for as long as possible, as efficiently as possible um, over the course of an event. I like this idea of training the gut. You hear a lot of people talk about certain on-course nutrition that they can't handle. And I think a big product of that is they don't have or they haven't tried it or they haven't tested it in their training. And it's super important that we know what we can handle on race day and super important to know what's going to be on course in case, like you mentioned, if someone launches their bottle of nutrition, that they can grab something and uh, get through the rest of the race. Absolutely. And I think one other comment I'll make on this point too, is that not all supplements are, are made the same. And so you know, a goo gel that you're using is different than the spring speed nut gel that I just became familiar with from an, from an athlete that I work with, um, one carrying 17 to 19 grams of fat within its composition, uh, which as I mentioned earlier, not really necessary for, uh, a half Ironman or an Olympic race where you might be incorporating a gel. And so I think taking care to consider, you know, that the nutrition label of the products that you're selecting, I think sodium content is another thing here to really consider when we think about the variety of fuel sources out there from a sports drink perspective, things like tailwind Gatorade endurance are pretty comparable. I think within 10 to 20 uh, milligrams of sodium for, you know, a serving size, you know, mixed, uh, you know, within a sports drink, um, you know, compared quite differently to some of these other, you know, scratch super fuel varieties um, that just have a little bit of a different cocktail. And it's something to be really, really cognizant of because when we're racing, we really have to meet an appropriate balance, um, you know, especially when we're thinking about, uh, you know, sports drinks from an hydration, uh, sodium and carbohydrate perspective uh, and making sure that we're able to tolerate the osmolality of the solution uh, as well, uh, both in training, not just on a seated stomach, you know, sitting on the bus on the way to the start of the Chattanooga half Ironman, but like when you're actively cresting up uh, Anderson or whatever that horrible hill is halfway through the half. We're talking about target ranges for races. And I know that so historically the range, the recommended range has been 60 to 90 grams per hour when you're racing. And over the last couple of years, we've, we know, as you mentioned, the upper limit is 120 grams per hour probably. And, and, and that's, that's what I've targeted at the last few Ironmans that I've done and, and typically go out on the bike, target that. So that's about 500 calories per hour. And then you taper off a little bit. You just kind of have to listen to your body. But it's interesting because the Ironman uh, coaching certification, you have to renew it every couple of years. And and there's a, uh, 
a test component and, and it's multiple choice. And I think it's like 50 questions. And one of the, uh, the questions was, was basically that like, you know, how many grams of carbs per hour, you know, should one consume? And, and it was, I think I got it wrong because I didn't know if like, if you look at a lot of nutrition books, it's, it's that 60 to 90, but we know that it's, you know, you can take in more so long mm-hmm. as it's fructose and, and glucose. And I, I knew that I was probably gonna get it wrong, but just out of principle, I was like, no, it's, it's hundred to 120 now. <laughs> and, uh, so I think Iron Man needs to update that, that question on their, on their, uh, their test. Um, but anyway, so, but looping back to this, the concept of training versus racing. And I think we need to clarify that you do not need to be consuming 500, calories per hour in all the time in training. In fact, most of the time you should not be. There's a time and place to practice actual race nutrition. And that that's in the race specific block during the key endurance sessions, uh, carbohydrates to consume. And now, you know, we're, we're in the off season, it's the winter time. Athletes say they're riding two to three hours. You know, they also, I would argue, don't need to be consuming even 90 grams of carbs per hour, you know, what would you recommend now if they're just, you know, sort of foundational, shorter, not race specific type long rides, um, for, for nutrition? So I I think it depends on the individual, right? Because if someone is someone who can uh, take in a hundred grams during a race and they're, you know, incredibly, uh, they, they have a high burn rate. Uh, maybe they're, they haven't really fueled that well the evening before or the morning of the race. I think the calculus shifts a little bit, but at a high level, um, the, the ranges I, I typically provide to clients for sort of like training season is, uh, for, you know, workouts between 90 to 150 minutes targeting anywhere from 30 to 75 grams of carbs per hour. Um, and then for 180 plus, uh, you know, that 75 to to 90 gram of carbs per hour, again, though, with an intentional focus on specific days during the training block, actually getting experience with, and not just on a trainer, but, you know, in, in the wild, so to speak, um, actually taking in what your nutrition protocol and regimen would be for the event itself to make sure that at intensity, um, and, you know, over that period of time that you are able to take in that amount, um, to, to build that reassurance for race day. Those are good recommendations. And that shakes out. So so you said, you know, say a two hour ride right now, you said, what did you say? 40 to 70, 30 to 75, 30 to 75. So, so that's basically, you know, one to two gels or per hour, or basically a bottle of sports drink per hour. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just to give some context. Whereas in the race specific block, if you needed to, if, if we're shooting to take in 120 grams of carbs per hour, um, you know that that's that's right around 500 calories per hour. You have to focus <laughs> if you're going to take take that in, because a bottle of Gatorade Endurance is. 100 180 calories yeah so you know we're talking about taking in you know basically two and a half bottles of those per hour so certain athletes can can do that i know that you know anthony for example at, at kona he's taken in <laughs> gatorade endurance at that rate i remember the, the training peaks uh 
comment always cracks me up. He's like, 20 bottles of Gatorade Endurance because he loves Gatorade Endurance and he, you know, it works for him. Um, but, uh, you know, the I think it was, I think I drank like, I don't know, 17 pounds of it or something uh, during Kona. But point being, you have to, you need to push the limits here. And it isn't just the the top athletes, you know, obviously Anthony, I was talking about Anthony, he's, he's a, he's, is a heavy sweater and he can take in a lot, but it just Chattanooga 70.3 pops in my mind. And there were two women who I work with and they did really well. And, um, you know, one, one woman is, is literally 120 pounds, maybe if that, and, you know, she was able to take in, she, she would take in a liter per hour and in that liter about 400 calories, um, which is a hundred grams of carbs. And another woman, it was, it was the same exact thing, you know, same, similar size. So it's not like we're talking about the the big Clydesdale athletes are drinking 500 uh, calories worth of sports drink per hour plus gels. It's, it's you, the body is really efficient at absorbing carbohydrate. And, and if it has glucose and fructose, tailwind, getter endurance, et cetera, all of these... Any good sports drink has a similar ratio of, of glucose to fructose. Now, it your body is going to be able to absorb a lot of it, and you might as well, you know, take in as much as you reasonably can. But you don't obviously you don't want a gut bomb. Um, so, and 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 this harkens back to this this idea of you know I, I think there's less of an obsession with becoming fat adapted. Um, and trying to lower, you know, the percentage of carbs that you're burning uh, at a given intensity zone relative to fat nowadays. Because if we think about it, zone three, you burn basically 80% carbs, 20% fats, depending on where you are in that range. And, you know, you tow the line. You know, I always say you want to tow the line a little bit puffy with your glycogen stores <laughs> topped off in a long course race. Um you could just do the math. So every hour, say you're burning 800 calories per hour, which is a fair amount. Um, you know, that that's 640 calories worth of carbs. And if you're taking in, you know, if you could take in 500 calories, 400 calories, you know, you're only in about a, your deficit isn't that great. And by the end of the race, you will have glycogen, you know, in your body. And in an Ironman, the, your intensity is is lower so you're only burning 65 percent carbs 35 percent fat approximately call it, you know again depends where you are in that range you know you can make it so that you're not depleting that 2000 call it calories worth of glycogen in your in your body right so 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 this is why i, I think there is we, we want to train with cars because it isn't the case that that there's this pressing need to be this uber duper efficient fat burner. Um, and I know that there are in some interesting studies that show that, you know, if you're, if you train in a glycogen depleted state, maybe, you know, you can actually build fitness better. Like the cellular signaling that incites fitness adaptations is, is, is greater, but you know, it's, it's, <laughs> there isn't a whole lot of, of, uh, there, there aren't many studies showing that and, and it's you want to be careful with that approach and if you're working out two times a day anyway you're going to be oftentimes in a glycogen depleted state anyway um but 
anyway, point point being, we want to push the limits in racing and in that race specific block during our key endurance days, especially want to experiment, you know, potentially train the gut because there's decent evidence that you can actually increase the uh, amount of carbohydrates that you can absorb um, over time just by kind of pushing the limits there. So, uh, you know, carb carbs are your friend and, and we want to understand that you can take in a lot. Um, so, and I know that you, you dial in on an individual level, everybody's who we work with, you know, their, uh, nutrition plan during, during races and figure out exactly what products work and, and, and what you know, they, how much, how many ounces of fluid they need to consume, how much sodium, how much carbohydrate, et cetera. That's right. Um, but but yeah, is there anything else that we need to cover as it relates to intra-workout nutrition or shall we move on to post-workout nutrition? I think we can move on to post. Unless Derek, you had any other comments? No, uh, that that's it. That covers the that part of it. So what's the deal with post-workout nutrition? Do we need to eat something immediately? Is there a little bit more room nowadays? How much, what about carbs and protein? How much should we be consuming? Yeah. So, um, you know, the anabolic window after training is a little bit longer than was previously, uh, you know, surmised, uh, not like you necessarily have to take something in immediately, you know, 15 to 30 minutes after training. Um, there can be some cases, um, for example, people with like reactive hypoglycemia where actually it could be to their benefit to eat something a little bit quicker, um, just, uh, given that, uh, blood sugar irregularity. However, you know, for the majority of people, um, just taking care to, to eat something as, as, you know, reasonably, uh, as reasonable as possible, um, close to that workout, um, to support muscle protein synthesis. And then also, uh, you know, just re-glycogenate, uh, re-glycogenation, um, uh, of, of the muscles and liver, uh, is important. Um, a three to one protocol, I think I mentioned earlier on the call, but three to one carb to protein ratio is typically what I recommend from a carbohydrate perspective, targeting about 0.45 grams per pound of body weight of carbohydrate. Um, so I think for, you know, the, the, the average, uh, or, or for like an 150 pound person, um, that's somewhere around, uh, you know, 70 to 75 grams of carbohydrates to 20 to 25 grams of protein. Um, and not necessarily having to be taken in, in one fell swoop, like in a drink while you're driving back from your workout session. Um, but you know, I, I have seen success with clients who, uh, have taken care to incorporate something like a beverage that gets them partway, uh, to those targets. And then maybe enjoying like a breakfast or a lunch that helps to meet the remainder of those targets, you know, within an hour or so of exercise. One thing that some clients um, can experience is a little bit of a, an appetite suppressant effect after they they work out. I know this is an experience I personally have um, when I'm like engaged in uh, more serious training or running is that I actually feel a bit disconnected from from my hunger right after I've worked out as a result of the endorphins from the activity and the adrenaline from the activity. Um, and what this often can lead to is, um, you know, a failure to actually fuel our bodies with what it needs immediately post-workout. And then you get those hunger, snacky, ravenous cravings a little bit later in the day. And so you can really get ahead of those while also supporting these very important physiological processes to optimize the impact of the workouts that were performed 
by taking care to, to really fuel appropriately after those workouts. And I would say as well, when we think about like a training pattern, I know that there are athletes out there who are doing two a day sessions who might even split those in the morning and the evening, um, just depending on their schedules. If they're busy working, they're waiting for the kids maybe to go to sleep and they're fitting in like an evening swim or an evening run or a bike, even a lifting session. I think it's really important to also take care to recognize that uh, refilling glycogen stores after that evening workout is not only imperative to make sure that your sleep is not disrupted, but also to make sure that you are set up for success for your workout the following morning. And so, you know, thinking about this, not only on a day-to-day basis, but on a weekly training regimen um, perspective becomes really important. Um, And thinking about this is not only fueling before the event, because I would argue that if you're doing an evening workout, not really having protein and carbs after the fact, going to sleep, even if you have like a date, like I was saying earlier, before you head out for your morning run, you're already like six dominoes back um, for starting that workout. And again, just raised risk of recovery, uh, you know, uh, detriments, as well as, uh, you know, opening up that risk for for in- injury and and the experience of overtraining. Uh, with low energy availability. I've spoken with a lot of athletes who they they bonk or they don't have good workouts. And I think a lot of them don't don't realize just how much <laughs> endurance athletes should be eating, number number one. And especially again, you talked about two a days and the importance of fueling after a workout so that your next workout is productive and, and, and feels good. I think that's super, super important. Um, again, especially if you're working out two times a day, like if you enter that second workout heavily depleted, you're gonna have issues. It's not going to go well. You're not gonna be able to hit those intensity targets. And then just day-to-day life, like you're going to feel pretty darn that you're going to feel tired, brain fog, etc. Um, so, you know, good athletes training high load, they, they they need to feel well and they, they, they need to not, I know last podcast we talked about, you know, body recomposition or, or losing fat, et cetera. It's, there's certainly a time and place for that. But, you know, when I, I know that athletes who don't pay attention to nutrition and who don't eat enough, they, they don't progress as well as, as other athletes and their, their workouts are comp- compromised and they tend to get hurt more. And it seems like, you know, post-workout is, it, I think it's just a good habit to get into, a good ritual, you know, start start that recovery process and, and, and all that. And I know that like we used to obsess over this 20-minute recovery window. I know that's been pushed back a little bit, but um, it's still a good habit to, to get into. And, and it's, it's just an action that you can take that will move you closer to your goals and 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 ultimately we just want to improve get faster and recover and and it's it's just a good promise to, to yourself that you're going to take that seriously
Yeah. And, you know, I think just to hearken back to a, a, you know, a recommendation I made about just being aware of like the nutrition labels on the back of supplements that you're using. I think it's really important to, even if you're not in a, in a stage of life or it's not something that's serving you or, or particularly helpful to track your, your intake on a broad basis. I do think evaluating that particular post-workout protocol that you're currently engaging in to see like, Hey, how close am I to, to these sort of thresholds and and ranges that have been identified as helpful? And, you know, is the protein powder, for example, that I'm using, does this not have any carbohydrates in it versus potentially a competitor product that comes with both carbs and protein implicit? And how can I doctor up say a recovery shake or pair that shake with, you know, some sort of, um, you know, breakfast that is going to get me from a carbohydrate perspective, um, and a protein perspective to where I need to be. Cause there's a lot of variability with products out there. Even when we think about, you know, different bars that people can get that are on the market, there can be 50 to hundred percent difference in, in the values of what you're taking in. Um, and the investment might be the same. The amount of money you're spending on those products might be the same, but the actual experience of taking them in is quite different. Uh, and so I think just being aware of that is, um, is helpful. And it's also not the case that you need to buy a particular supplement. Um, I was joking the other day that like pizza is actually a three to one, uh, carb to protein, uh, option. I think I saw, uh, Todd Suter the other day, uh, enjoying a, a slice or two of pizza, uh, post-workout and support it all the way over here. I mean, Zwift does measure the, uh, the work you do by pizza slices. <laughs> <laughs> They're on the right track. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so last thing on the list to discuss is carbohydrate loading protocols. Um, so, so what's, what's the deal with those? Yeah. So, and I'll, I'll be brief here. I know we've, um, extended the conversation for quite Mm -hmm. a bit. So I want to make sure folks are, uh, uh, feeling excited about the conversation, um, at a very high level, um, carbohydrate loading is a protocol that I engage or will, uh, support clients with designing, uh, around specific races. Uh, if someone's racing, like more than several times in a given year. Um, this, this is a pretty intensive carbohydrate, uh, dominant protocol. Uh, and so we might select a couple of races, um, where we're going to engage in this protocol to really provide that sort of like stocked glycogen store, uh, capacity for them. Um, but it might not be something we do for every single race. If they're racing super frequently, um, this concept of uh, super compensation of glycogen. Uh, essentially what the research has shown is that it can help athletes maintain their paces for 20% longer, and it improves endurance performance by about two to three minutes for activities that are lasting longer than 90 minutes. So there's a real material impact, you know, to be derived from this protocol. In the past, there used to be sort of like a 
a deloading phase where people would purposely restrict carbohydrates and then enter into a carbohydrate loading phase. That uh, is no longer seen as the gold standard, thankfully. And the approach now is really um, for a period of, you know, anywhere between 24 to 72 hours, depending on the event, depending on the athlete, um, really amping up carbohydrate intake, uh, again, to really um, you know, boost uh, those uh, glycogen stores, uh, you know, for for race day. So anywhere from one to three days. Um, and the protocol actually is a little bit different for uh, women versus men. Um, most of this is just resulting from absolute volume, um, given, uh, you know, what we're able to metabolize. And then also just generally speaking, uh, what the you know, per kilogram ratio might be uh, for uh, a woman versus a man. Um, but at a high level, anywhere between seven to 12 grams per kilogram. So it gets to be pretty sizable. Um, you know, I have, you know, a, a client uh, about 135 pounds. Uh, and with a, a, a carb loading protocol, it's about 580 plus grams of carbs for the two days leading up to the race. Um, and, uh, you mentioned early showing up puffy, um, one of our shared athletes, uh, Derek Owens and I, um, both cut coach a wonderful, wonderful athlete named Austin Gregg, who, uh, <laughs> very, uh, lovingly referred to it as a hashtag pleasantly puffy at the start line, uh, for the <laughs> marathon that he did, um, uh, a couple of months back. Um, but again, I think certainly has a place. Uh, in terms of preparing our bodies to to execute and perform well uh, with a little bit of nuance depending upon the athlete of of you know where they fall within that range. Uh, and I typically actually will work with athletes to sort of like phase up in the days leading up for a carb protocol. So I'll usually have them do like fifty percent of a carb protocol one day and then amping up to the full, the full uh, Monty uh, for, for the day before. Uh, and then of course, uh, making sure that their race day nutrition is also in place. Um, and from a hydration perspective, just taking care to make sure folks are well hydrated um, in the days leading up to the race uh, and then ensuring the morning of a race that they're taking in electrolytes with any water they're consuming that morning um, so that they're not actually inadvertently dehydrating themselves by not having, you know, sodium uh, coming along with that to boost absorption and, and hydration status. There is a lot that goes into you know, nutrition as it relates to endurance training, endurance racing, and we appreciate you shedding some light on a lot of these oftentimes confusing topics or, or we all hear conflicting things. Um, but I think that this is, this is going to help, help some athletes. And, and I think that, uh, yeah, we, we, we definitely appreciate you coming on here. And I know, like I said, last time people love when you come on here, these are some of our most popular podcasts. So, uh, we appreciate you coming, coming on there, but I think that this, this covers it all. This was a productive conversation. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. I know a lot of people have questions around carbohydrates and, you know, I know you and I both get a lot of questions about how many, how much they need, need, they need to consume and you covered a lot of it here. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the opportunity. And I will offer as well that, you know, nutrition is an ever evolving field. This is what we know today. 
and always happy to hop on as we're learning more about any sort of evolution that might be taking place, uh, you know, within the course of the nutrition sphere to make sure that we're we're always leaning on the uh, the most relevant and recent information, um, but happy to debunk some topics and, and also shed light on the why behind, you know, why protocols are designed the way that they are today. Uh, and thanks for having me on for the conversation. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. See ya.